Welcome to Radio Silence, where we're bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. My name is Kai, I study a PhD in physics, and today I'm joined by Kate. Kate, how's it going? Hey Kai, what's up? I'm here too. Um, I study neuroscience, I'm well, just about to start my PhD uh, <laughs> in neuroscience here at the uni, and today it's not just us, we are joined... Ooh by a guest host. Very exciting to have Katrina and Ewan Robinson here. Kat, what's up? How are you? Hey. Hey, Kate. Hey, Kai. I'm good, thanks. Thank you so much for, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And just for everyone who doesn't know, what do you study? What are you doing with your time? (laughs) What do I do with the time? Too much. (laughs) Um, I Mm. am also doing a PhD, but at the other end, um, I'm trying to submit and Mm. I'm studying the immune system. I'm an immunologist. Yes. Super exciting. And we'll get more into that and what you do a little bit later in the show. But first off, guys, so today's show is all about human, right? That's that's the theme of our show. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Say the world's ending, right? Oh, well, I mean, the world is ending, but say the world's like, you know, really ending. And, and you've got to sacrifice one of your body parts to the overlords that are about to end Earth in order to save the planet. Which body part do you sacrifice? Kai. That's that's a tough one. Mm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, There's there's so many that are useful, but I feel like I would just go with my nose Mm -hmm. because then people like the joke, but how would he smell? Terrible. It's just like, <laughs> I'd just be a walking joke. It'd be, it'd be hilarious. And no um, one could do the, got your nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And maybe Except I'd look for like the Voldemort. overlords that are about to destroy Earth, who could, in fact, do that. Uh, no, I love yeah. it. That's a great one. That's a uh, great one. Catriona, what about you? Well, I feel like the cop-out answer is the appendix or the tonsils. So mm. I'm going to go with not quite the tonsils, but similar ballpark, the thymus. Um, ah. Okay. So. Obviously, that's so unimportant. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> well, it's actually the the most recent organ that the function has been found. If that makes sense, like you know, we've known right. what the heart does for a long time. We know what the brain does, but like the thymus, the guy who found out what the thymus does is still alive. So like, you know, that's oh, that's something. Wow. Um, but essentially, that's where your T cells, which I'm sure we'll talk about when, when I chat mm. about the immune system, but it, it's where they develop. So your immune cells are developing there. And then once you're grown up, it's not as important anymore. So okay, I'm so willing you're not to sacrifice lose it. your ability. You know, if you're, you know, old enough, you don't need it anymore. Yeah, pretty much. Nice. Um, I'd probably just get rid of my breasts, if I'm honest. You know, I don't know if that's appropriate for our TV, sh- a TV show, radio show. <laughs> But, like, it's just extra fat and skin that's just kind of hanging out there. Not very useful. Decreases Um, the risk of breast cancer. Well, yeah. And, you know, I can't do my appendix on my tonsils because I've already lost them. So I'm I'm running out of useless (laughs) body parts and I feel like that's the next on the list. Um, But we will get a bit more into some of that human stuff a bit later. First, we're going to start, as always, with some news. Kai, what news for the week have you got? All right, so mine's also a little bit in the in the human vein, and it's got mm-hmm. to do with muscles. Okay. Now, 
if you've suffered like a serious muscular trauma, maybe you know, a car accident or something, or maybe you've had a surgery where they had to cut out a big chunk of your muscle, like it will mm-hmm. eventually grow back, but scar tissue will also form in that, that healing process, which could seriously inhibit the function of the muscles. Like it's not going to fully recover to the way it was originally if you've mm. experienced such a big trauma. Gotcha. But researchers from the US have developed a new treatment that they're calling muscle ink, which is because oh. it's like printing a new muscle. And Righto. and what, what what they've done is they've developed this this handheld printing device that prints out a gel that can stick to wet tissue and it kind of works like a hot glue gun that that like squirts out this gel into the, the muscle injury, the gap where there used to be muscle that's now been, you know, damaged or cut out or whatever. And and this gel contains a compound that promotes muscle regrowth. Mm-hmm. And and what it does is it slowly releases this compound over time to encourage the muscle to regrow around the gel substrate. So it it encourages it to grow back in the printed region. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've tested this in mice and they've shown that those treated with the technique have been able to make a full recovery after a muscular trauma, while the ones that were untreated suffered, you know, ongoing, you know, muscular problems and, and couldn't recover to their full extent. So this is really exciting. If they can get this treatment to, to work as well in humans, you know, for trauma victims, it could be really, really useful in terms of, you know, making a full recovery where people otherwise wouldn't. So mm-hmm. I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Is it kind of like dissolvable stitches? Like, so you know how you said that um, it's encouraging growth around the gel? Like, will the gel eventually sort of dissolve and then become part of your tissue? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the whole point that like the substrate is there to like, you know, help the muscle grow like dissolvable stitches, help your, your skin to heal. And then once it's done its job, it dissolves and yeah, you're good to go. Hmm. That's really cool. I that's man this is so clever I feel like I say that at least seven times a show but well, <clears throat> speaking of clever scientists Kate what, what news have you got yeah I've got I've got some news about some clever scientists as well so scientists in the US and China have recently published a paper in nature metabolism and it's it's about alcohol in the brain, which is, you know, what I study. So I couldn't not talk about this because it's really mm. interesting. So essentially, what we know about, you know, you drink alcohol, you get kind of disoriented, you kind of stumble around. You know, we, we know what it feels like to be intoxicated with alcohol. And a lot of the reason for that is because when you drink, the alcohol or the ethanol is broken down by an enzyme called ALDH2. This enzyme breaks down the ethanol and one of the metabolites that kind of comes from this is acetate. And when acetate gets into the brain, it triggers the release of GABA. And GABA, you may have heard of GABA, everyone's heard of GABA. It's our primary sort of inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it slows everything down. That's why we call alcohol a depressant, right? And it slows down your functioning. So scientists have always sort of known that this ALDH2 enzyme that breaks down the ethanol into the acetate, we know that that's in the liver in huge amounts and a lot of the breaking down of ethanol happens in the liver. And so what we always thought is that this ALDH2 does the ethanol breaking down thing in the liver and then the acetate travels through the bloodstream from the liver to the brain where it does its thing. Mm. However, what this new research has found is that the enzyme ALDH2 is also in the brain. 
And what happens mm. when scientists, they did this in mice, this is only in mice so far, and what they did is they found in the cerebellum in particular, so that's the part responsible for sort of balance and coordination, they found that in mice there's heaps of this enzyme, ALDH2, and when they removed this enzyme from the liver it didn't stop. The mice still got drunk, essentially. They lost their motor coordination and stuff from yep. the alcohol. Uh, but when they removed it from the brain, there was no high acetate levels, no GABA, no um, staggering mice. And so oh, wow. what actually happens is that, yes, it gets broken down on, in the liver, but also what's kind of responsible for us getting, you know, it's all in the brain, not in the body, which, you know, we kind of knew that alcohol in the brain is what's causing these effects, but it's actually getting broken down in the brain by the enzyme to cause the effects. It's not traveling there after it's already been broken down. So that's really, that's yeah. that's new and exciting and, and different to what we've understood for so long. So um, clever scientist. 10 out of 10. <laughs> uh, do you think there's a reason why it gets broken down in the brain? Like, if, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't know that you were drunk and that could have other problems, or...? Yeah, I wonder. Um, I It doesn't necessarily... Because, like, that's probably why we thought for so long that it gets broken down in the liver, because that makes sense, and then it does travel from the liver to the brain. Um, so we kind of just assumed that that's what was happening. But, you know, it seems that that's just an unnecessary step, right, to have to break it down elsewhere and then transport the acetate to the brain. Why not mm. just, like, do everything in-house, right? Get the alcohol, break it down, get it to do yeah, its thing. Yeah. You know, it's a lot less effort for the body in terms of transporting stuff left, right, and centre. Um, but, yes, this has only been shown in mice so far, so, you know, more will come. Watch this space. <laughs> yeah, very, very cool. And we're going to be talking about some more human science on this episode, but... Before that, we've got our song, and this is Human by Doty. Welcome back to Radio Silence, bringing science into focus here on Radio Fodder. You just heard Human by Doty, and today we're talking about human science. Kate, start us off. Yeah, so when, when we decided on the topic human science, I was thinking, I was, I was trying to think about what I could talk about, and I realised the best thing to talk about is something that only humans can do. And mm. that is produce emotional tears. So other animals can cry, right? And produce tears. And I got, I actually found out a lot of this stuff and, you know, learned about this for the first time because I made a podcast, um, you know, cheeky self promo. Mm. I have a podcast <laughs> as well. It's called Curiosity Killed the Rat. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and, you know, if you want to hear me talk about, you know, more to do with tears, there's a whole, whole hour of it there. But I want to talk about the emotional tears because it turns out we actually have three very distinct, very different types of tears. We have okay. our basal tears, which is when we're just kind of like chilling day to day, our eyes are constantly lubricated. Um, and every time we blink, yep. some moisture from the lacrimal gland gets pushed across our eyes and just to, you know, keep everything smooth and moist and, you know, happy in there. Um, <laughs> and so those are our basal tears. Those are different from what we call reflex tears, which is like, you know, when you get a bit of dust in your eye or when you're chopping onions, that produces um, an irritant that makes your eyes water to protect themselves. And those have got, you know, antibodies in them and a bunch of different stuff to kind of protect the eyeballs, that additional layer. And then we have the third type of tears that only humans do, and that is emotional tears. So other animals produce this liquid, these basal tears and these reflex tears. Like you can chop onions in front of a dog or a cat and their eyes will start to water. It's <laughs> kind of funny, but that's not them being emotionally sad. Um, 
which is what we cry, right? When we get emotionally sad or when we feel really strong emotions of kind of, you know, any kind. And the feels. I'll get to that. Yeah, whenever you're, <laughs> you know, stuck in the feels, um, that's because... Yeah, you, you well, that's that's because of whatever happened to make you sad. And then it leads to the production of these emotional tears. So I'll explain why or why we think humans can do this. So like I kind of said, other animals cry. Like you've heard a dog whine, right? They have these vocal yeah. cries that they make when they're sad or when they're distressed and they need to communicate to the rest of the pack or whatever, um, communicate this distress. And so what we think is that humans back in the day... Um, well, before before we were humans, you know, our, our evolutionary ancestors also had these vocal cries. And somewhere along the line, these vocal cries turned into these visible cries, this production of tears, because it like it makes sense evolutionarily. So if you think about the purpose of crying to be communicating to, you know, that you need social support, essentially, you're communicating to the rest of your pack, to the rest of your, you know, group of of fellow animals um that you need support and what would be nifty is if you could communicate that you needed help without also alerting predators that you know you were there mm. and you were weak <laughs> and you were you know nice and easy Emotionally pickings, vulnerable. right exactly <laughs> so what we think is that humans started to produce these um emotional tears so like they got really worked up and you know when you cry or you see a baby cry their face is like contorted and squeezing <laughs> and we think that that maybe helped squeeze out you know, the, the tears and that's what leads to that tear production. And then that's just been reinforced because the ones that produce these visible tears and could communicate it without drawing audible attention to themselves, mm. those were the ones obviously more likely to survive because they got the help of the people. And then therefore, you know, we evolved to have this essentially secret code, right? To um, yeah. communicate why you know, or communicate, sorry, when we're distressed. And the really cool thing is, well, one of the really cool things, gosh, there's so many cool things, but these tears are actually different. So if you like got a little pipette thing and stole a little tear from someone who'd been chopping onions, put that under a microscope and compared it to like, I guess the ethical way, by the way, they, they do this in experiments and get people to emotionally cry is they get them to watch like sad videos or sad movies because that's, that's how you get ethics to make someone sad cry for your experiment. And you can't just, you know, get dust in their eye or chop onions or whatever. You actually need these emotional tears because when you look at them under a microscope, they're, they're different. And, and when you, like, have a look at the chemical composition and what's actually in these tears, the emotional tears have about 25% more protein than the reflex tears, for argument's sake. Um, and we're not really sure why. Um, there's a couple of different theories. The leading kind of theory is that the extra protein in the emotional tear, first of all, makes it a nicer sort of teardrop shape, makes it an aesthetically pleasing <laughs> tear. Um, and it also slows down how quickly it runs down the face. Because not only are we, like, you know, have we evolved to produce tears to signal our, you know, sadness or whatever, we've actually also evolved to notice tears and to recognise tears and to care about tears essentially so they've looked at they've used eye scanning technology like you put a photo of someone crying in front of someone and 
their eyes go straight to the tear straight away or follow the tear down the face. Um, you show people photos of someone with tears on the face and then someone with the, the tear edited away, photoshopped off. Yep. Um, and they care a lot more about the one with the tear. First of all, they can recognize the emotion. They're like, oh, that person's sad. Whereas you get rid of the tear, it's like, oh, they're just, you know staring off into the distance, you know, are they laughing, like, what's going on? But as soon as you add the tear, first of all, you recognize sadness or distress. And mm. then without it, you, um, yeah, you don't care. So, <laughs> yeah, like, they gave scenarios. I think it was, like, they had people being, like, you know, a story. So they had a picture of someone with a tear on the face being, like, oh, my car just got stolen. Um, and you're more likely to believe the person and to care if that person has a tear versus if they don't. Um, so that's interesting. So yeah, we think that the extra protein in the tears is helping make it stick around longer and also make it more aesthetically pleasing so that we're drawn to it and we're more likely to notice it. Whereas reflex tears, we don't need to notice those. Like someone can cry at onions in their own time. We don't need to offer emotional support (laughs) unless that person is genuinely emotionally disturbed by the cutting of onion flesh, in which case (laughs) the tear will fall more slowly and we'll notice. So, you know, nature just has a way of, uh, figuring these things out. Another um, potential theory, though, I like this one and I want it to be true, but the evidence is a bit uh, debated, um, is that we're actually crying out stress, essentially. So what, like, we kind of get a lot of, you know, we get a lot of what's called autonomic arousal. We get really worked up when we're crying and your cortisol levels go up or your stress hormones, etc., etc. And then after a good cry, all of those things go back down again. And one of the things, one of the proteins that's found in these tears, in these emotional tears specifically, is something called leucine enkephalin, which is an endogenous opioid. So it's like it's like a natural painkiller, essentially, um, that your body produces. And it's found in the tears. So it's like, okay, you're producing this painkiller. But also another thing that's found in there is a hormone called ACTH, which uh, I'm going to... Adrenocorticotrophin hormone pronunciation. Let's just go with ACTH. Um, and essentially, it's it's linked to cortisol production. So it's sort of the the hormone that then triggers you to produce cortisol. In it's part of having that stress reaction. It's produced um, predominantly in the adrenal glands, and that's found in your tears. So there's this hypothesis that you're literally crying out the stress, and by you know, cathartically ridding your body, draining your body of these stress hormones that lowers or helps contribute to lowering your stress levels. It's a cool theory, but, you know, take that one with with a bit of a grain of salt, I reckon. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, essentially, emotional tears, really, really cool, really cool things. And only humans, like, there have been a couple of, you know, isolated case studies of, you know, reports of dogs or horses or whatever having these, you know, emotional tears. But it, if it happens, it's very, very rare because it's yet to be, to be validated by, you know, a large scientific study. It's essentially, you know, only humans have developed this need to communicate. Wow. So they haven't got like a whole bunch of dogs and made them watch sad movies. <laughs> 
No, no, funnily <laughs> enough. Um, but there are ways that, you know, you can make a dog sad if the dog's bonded to its owner and then you separate it from the owner. Yeah. You know, there's ways, and we know how dogs express, you know, they have certain facial or ear reactions, like body language things or those vocal cries that they make, you know, when a puppy's been separated, it vocally cries. You know when yeah. a puppy's sad, right? Uh, but it doesn't produce those tears. But if you chop mm. onions next to it, it will. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my fun bit of human human science for you. Yeah, very how do, cool. How do like happy tears fit into the picture? Because that's not distress. No, no. So happy tears are essentially once again a form of communication. So there's once again a couple of little theories around that. Number one being, you know, happy tears tend to occur upon the backdrop of sadness. So say being reunited after a long period of time apart, or a surprise, you know, reunited someone was away at the war or whatever. Um, that that's an, an event that's well associated with these happy tears, and we think that you know maybe it's actually us recognizing the sadness of the fact that they were gone for so long. And that's what makes the happiness feel even more happy. But it's that memory of the sadness that's actually triggering the hypothalamus and the prefrontal cortex um, to produce these emotional tears. Um, yeah. But there's a, there's a couple of different theories about the happy tears as well. So once again, listen to my podcast, uh, Curiosity <laughs> Kill the Rat. You can find us at Curiosity Rat on social media. Um, but yeah, I go into that in a lot more detail Um because there's more time but yeah it's oh it's really tears and crying are just it's so interesting to me i think anyway yeah no definitely very interesting mm. well yeah thanks for that kate uh here's a song it's not crying by flight of the concords and we'll be back after this You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder where we are bringing science into focus human science today and that was not crying by flight of the concords human science for this show on human science we have a special guest here guest host chilling with us today's episode catriona how's it going it's going great <laughs> and i'm really excited to talk to you today about well i guess a bit about some of your your research and then i guess a bit more broadly about how it fits in um so do you want to start us off give us a little you know summary of the sort of stuff that you're doing for your phd or that you've done as part of your phd yeah sure well first i'll introduce you to my favorite type of cell which yeah you know, i mm -hmm. think is the most important type of cell um your t-cells which i mentioned um earlier in in the mm -hmm. show um, so T cells are a special type of immune cells and they're kind of like snipers in that they take their time to set up. So, you know, if you're infected with a bacteria or a virus, they won't respond straight away, but mm -hmm. they sort of bide their time. And then when they actually are ready to fight, they're really good. They're, they're, um, you know, very specific at what they target. So you'll have one T cell that targets like a little bit of the influenza virus or one T cell that targets a little bit of um, the HIV virus. Mm -hmm. um, so they're all very, very specific. And so you need quite a lot of them to be able to cover, you know, every single possible uh, pathogen, like bacteria, virus, mm -hmm. parasite that you might encounter in your life. So in order, in order for them to sort of gain this specificity, they have to, do they have to be exposed to the virus in the first place and then train up essentially to to be able to identify it or are there just do we kind of just have different t-cells in our body already yeah we we just have we we call it a pool we have a pool mm -hmm. of t-cells that are you know hopefully designed to 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 be able to um at least recognize 
you know, all the things that we would encounter in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, what they do is they go through training in, in the thymus, that organ mm-hmm. that I wouldn't care to lose right that now. That you would sacrifice <laughs> to the, yep. Yep, I, I would totally sacrifice it at this age. Um, yep. <laughs> not when I'm a, not when I'm a child. No, you um, need it then. Yeah. But essentially, they, they go through the thymus to make sure that they don't recognize anything that's from you. So they will recognize whatever, mm-hmm. as long as it is not from you. So, so right. most T cells recognize um, peptides, which are the derivatives of proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, but but my favorite kind of T cells, they they recognize uh, lipids, which are sort of fat and oil molecules. But essentially, they're just tested against all these different peptides. So your thymus is really cool in that it, um, there are special cells in your thymus that can sort of present, you know, the kind of proteins that you'd get in your foot or the kind of proteins mm. you get like <laughs> randomly anywhere else in the body. Um, so they don't, you know, belong in the thymus, but they're just sort of, you know, there to test that the T cells won't react to them. Because yeah, right. if you've got T cells going around your body that do start to react to to your own peptides, then that's a problem, and, and that's mm-hmm. why people have type one diabetes because they start to attack their pancreas or and and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, so that's how we get all of our T cells. It's it's basically just um, a mix and match of of all these different genes because each T cell mm-hmm. receptor is made up of uh, five different genes um and mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like you there are some constant ones in there but otherwise it's uh it's kind of like five that are mixing matching and mm-hmm. you know you've got 10 to the 18 possible combinations yeah that so like that's gonna trillion, cover quintillion cover bases. something like that <laughs> <laughs> large yeah. number large very large number yeah yeah so um when when a t-cell recognizes um you know, it's, it's target, it becomes mm-hmm. activated and it can go down different pathways. So we have some that are helper T cells mm-hmm. and they're kind of like a superhero, like Superman. They have all sorts of powers. They can do all <laughs> these crazy things mm-hmm. um, and they send alarm signals to the rest of the immune system. They gear up <laughs> and, and they make sure everything's fighting. And then we also have ninjas. So the ninjas are, are, are the killer T cells and they just kill anything of, of your own that's infected. So if it, if it goes around your body and sees that a cell is infected, uh-huh. they'll kill it. Kind of like quarantine, you know, because you, you don't want anything else to get sick. You don't want sickness to spread. So yeah, if something's so infected... So if our it's... approach to hotel quarantine was to just <laughs> kill the people that were infected. <laughs> Essentially. Gotcha. gotcha. Don't recommend that, government, if you're listening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe let's not do that with, with humans. But um, yeah, inside the body... The yeah. body is willing to sacrifice I'm... these cells. Ruthless, You'll grow I more. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So I'm picturing like Batman, Robin kind of scenario where Batman are like your ninja killer uh, T-cells and then Robin is the chipper, helpful little helper <laughs> superhero that does, you know, I don't know. But it sounds um, like they're not in the spotlight as much, <laughs> but they are. Yeah, true. True. I don't know. I was just trying to think it. This is this is why you're talking about it. Ba- and Batman and Superman. Batman and Superman. There we go. We're forming the Justice League. We're forming the <laughs> Justice League. Um, love it. So, what you do? You do research with T cells. Yes, yes, I do. So, um, I I do research with what we call unconventional 
T cells. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm hipster. hipster. T-cells, of course. <laughs> yeah. You would. The you mainstream T cells, they're just too boring. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say that. They're, they're not boring. They all work together. But, like, come on, hipster T cells. <laughs> um, so, T cells before they were cool. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned that most T cells recognize peptides, but the the T cells that I recognize, they recognize lipids. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, we have a lot of fat in our body. Like, you know, the, there's the fat that you don't want. And, and then there's mm. there's also, you know, fat that protects your neurons, for example. Mm. Um, and, and so you, you do have good fat as well. Um, but what I'm interested in is uh, the T cells that are recognizing unique fat molecules that cover bacteria. So the mm-hmm. tuberculosis bacteria, for example, yeah. um, that causes TB, that is covered in unique fats. It, it has like a very, very fatty cell wall. And yeah. so what I'm testing is to see whether some of those those fat molecules and those lipids that are from the bacterium can induce a strong response with these T cells. Because mm-hmm. if they do, then maybe we can improve the tuberculosis vaccine. Because at the moment... It's not great, not going to lie, not great, um, especially for adults. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, but if we can, you know, somehow induce stronger immune responses, we might be able to be better protected. Yeah, right. So the the TB uh, virus is Bacterium. You know, fitting in. Uh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, I, my, my brain is stuck in viruses at the moment. Mm-hmm. Blame well, the pandemic. No, yeah. sorry. The TV bacterium is uh, that's like the penguin in our Justice DC uh, universe because <laughs> it's quite fat, um, and so that's how we're targeting it. No, interesting. I like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, looking for bait, looking for bait in the bacterium that that we could then use to mm-hmm. to draw out these T cells. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so you said that um, you're going to use that for. A vaccine, potentially. Potentially, yeah, because the idea of a vaccine is that you sort of want to show the immune system a little bit of of whatever the, mm-hmm. the potential threat is, um, sort of like a wanted poster saying, yep. hey, this is dangerous, beware, so that you're getting all these T-cells that can recognize what's on the wanted mm-hmm. poster, so all those T-cells that can recognize um, anything from from the tb bacterium whether it's you know the, the fats or, or, or the the peptides and, and proteins and things mm-hmm. um but essentially you're getting them ramped up you're getting them multiplying because if you can imagine if we have you know t-cells that can can that can see like any given potential thing that we encounter in our lives you know there are a lot of them and so the frequency of any one is quite mm-hmm. low so, you know, the, the the number of T cells that we have that could see the tuberculosis bacterium if we haven't had a vaccine or, or anything, like, would be quite low. Like, they'd be quite rare in our body. So the idea of a vaccine is to ramp them up, to get them multiplying, getting them dividing so that we have heaps of them mm-hmm. so that if we ever do, you know, encounter the bacterium, they can fight it off straight away. Yeah, gotcha. So that is that similar to how, you know, to bring it back to viruses, because COVID is all anyone can ever talk about these days, and apparently I'm among that. Um, the the vaccines that have been developed for the COVID, the COVID vaccines that target the spike protein of the COVID virus, would that be similar to, you know, targeting the fat on the outside of the TB? You know, is it that kind of thing where we've isolated a part of the dangerous thing yeah to try alert the immune system that 
you know, they should be similar sort of thing. Pretty much. Um, so, yeah, what that's trying to do is is ramp up those those T cells that recognize the spike protein. So in a, in a very similar way to what I was talking about. Um, but another aspect to that or, or another arm is is that we get we have B cells as well. You know, we have B and T cells, mm-hmm. cleverly named with with letters. T cell because they come from the thymus, like fun fact. Mm. Um, and then B cells because bone or is that just a well, coincidence? They, they do come from the bone marrow and that's where they develop. Um, yeah. So that's what people think, but it's actually named after the bursa of a bird, like which is where they were originally found. Right, but there you, go. you can remember it as beef bone. It is bone quite marrow. convenient. <laughs> it is. So it is beef bone. a bit of I a like quinky that. dink. Yeah. Um. But but B cells as well. They're the ones that produce antibodies. Um. Which yeah. which are like little little arrows. Um. If, if you think of an archer shooting arrows, but mm-hmm. um, they're very very specific. Um, as well for particular viruses or bacteria. So we're, yeah. we're getting those B cells engaged that do recognize um, the, the spike protein or, or mm-hmm. the, the COVID-19 virus in general um, and, yeah. and getting them amplified, getting them making lots and lots and lots of antibodies to sort of go everywhere to protect you, especially in the respiratory tract because you, you kind of want to line your respiratory tract with, with things like T-cells that can fight um, antibodies and, and have them there mm-hmm. ready to go. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So maybe a bit of a dumb question, but like what do antibodies actually do in, in this sense? If the T-cells are the ones killing the, the pathogens, what, are the, what does the antibodies actually do? So the antibodies don't directly do any killing per se, but they, they make um, the pathogen. So in this case, the virus, if we talk about the virus, they make it a target and a very, very big target. So they'll, they'll do several things. They'll um, bind to it and what we call neutralize it. So if, if it's all sort of blocked with antibodies, um, mm-hmm. it's lock and key sort of thing. So like, you know, it uses the spike protein as a key to open the lock and get inside our cells. Um, so if you block the spike protein, by covering it in antibodies, it can no longer get into our cells. It's sort of like shoving gum into the lock, except Mm. in this case, you're covering the key. But, you know, same thing. (laughs) Um, Gum on the key. A bunch of bubble gum. Yeah. Um, So that's that's one aspect. Um, It also, like I said, sort of makes it a target for other immune cells. Um, and it also... So bright red bubble gum. Really alerts (laughs) you to the... Bright red with like, you know, uh, white circles as well. Like, you know, that target yeah. sort of yeah. picture. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and it will attract other cells to, to kill it or to kill infected cells um, with, with other ninja kind of cells that we have. Um, and it will also like encourage macrophages, which are cells that are like Pac-Man. They just like sort of gobble mm. up anything. Um, it will encourage these uh, macrophages to gobble up the virus and destroy it. Yeah, wow. So that it is no more. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> <laughs> I love the human body. So whack. So cool. So many fighters. Um, yeah, yeah. We have we have a whole army in there fighting for us. I love it. Well, before we wrap this segment up, was there anything else that you, you know, wanted to let our listeners know, Katriona, about the immune system, what you do, what's cool? Um, well, just something that I'll, I'll, I'll say is that, you know, cause someone asked me this today, how do, how do I get a better immune system? So your immune system is great. Mm. It's functional. It's, it's like, you know, 
we've talked about how interesting it is and and how great it is at defending things. There's kind of a fine line. You kind of want it defending you from all the bacteria and viruses that you're breathing in every day because you breathe in Mm. like millions. But Mm. you don't want it overactive because that's when it starts to attack you. Like I mentioned with type 1 diabetes, Mm. you've got allergies um, and and other autoimmune conditions. So, you know, something to consider is always that like you don't necessarily want your immune system to be like better Better. yeah because it's in that goldilocks sweet spot of just right if you're not constantly getting sick you're fine (laughs) yeah yeah it's doing its thing good on it good on it well thank you very much just quickly before we shuffle onto our song if our listeners loved hearing you talk about research do you have any social media handles that you want to plug real (laughs) fast where people can find you and hear you chat about the immune system well, on Twitter, I'm at Katriona NR. That's my name, NR. And I also sing songs about the immune system and biology and all that kind of stuff on YouTube. And um, I'm also on Instagram, and that's at Neuroscientist, N Y U R O Scientist. Nice. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us. And I'm going to take us straight into our next song, which is Airport Piano by Tim Minchin. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. That was Airport Piano by Tim Minchin. And today we are bringing human science into focus. We've talked about some cool human science so far. And to finish us off, Kai, what have you got for us? Well, Kate, before you spoke about the fact that humans are the only animals to produce emotional tears. And I'm going to Mm. talk about something else that humans are the only animals to do. Gosh, it's become a very egocentric episode. (laughs) I like it. Aren't humans great? Yeah. They are. Yeah. So My favorite animal. (laughs) Humans are the only animals to drink milk from other animals. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which is and a weird thing that we is, do when you think about it. It is a bit weird it. when you think about it. Yeah. And I even milk from not other Are you going to make me think about it? <laughs> also, also true. When you're above a certain age, that becomes weird. Yeah. And that is that like you're spot on there. Like, again, humans are the only animals to drink milk as adults, mm. regardless of whether it's it's from humans or not. And yeah, it's it's really, really weird. And the reason that this is, it has to do with lactose, which is a type of sugar found in milk. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a, an enzyme called lactase, which is responsible for breaking down lactose when you're trying yep. to digest milk. And humans and other mammals produce this enzyme lactase when they're young and they're, they're you know, drinking milk from their mothers. And obviously, you need this enzyme to break down the milk. And if you don't, you know there's all sorts of problems that, that can occur. You know, people who don't have the enzyme that, that, break down, that breaks down lactose, you know, often yeah, we call them lactose, lactose intolerant, intolerant. And they have, you know, some of the symptoms are things like abdominal pain or, you know, gas, diarrhea, like... Mm, all those fun not ones. Yep. All the fun ones, yeah. So, for people who don't have this enzyme find drinking milk is kind of unpleasant. Mm, fun for you and everyone around you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So pretty... No, but, um, yeah, so most other mammal species stop producing lactase when they, you know, transition into adulthood, which kind of makes sense. There's no need for them to drink milk anymore, so they don't need the enzyme to break it down. Now, this was also true for early humans. Mm-hmm. 
So, thousands of years ago, when humans first started drinking milk, they were all lactose intolerant. Like, they just didn't have this enzyme to break down milk when they, like, grew out of childhood. Hmm. Right? So, have we developed the ability to break it down through just, like, drinking it? And our body yeah, having, and, and just being like, hey, body, deal with it. And our body's being <laughs> like, oh, okay, guess I better deal with it. Well, it's, 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 not, it's not so much on like a, a single lifetime scale. It's actually evolutionary. Like yeah, over the right. last 6,000 years since humans started to herd animals and, and started, you know, using dairy, mm-hmm. like evolutionary pressure has, has you know, seen the advantage that, hey, drinking milk is actually pretty good. I mean, um, like, who was the first person, though, the first human who <laughs> saw a calf suckling on its mother's teat and give went, me some you know, of that. I want some too. <laughs> like, yeah, well, truly, whose idea was that? It seems pretty crazy, but, like, they may have just been really, really thirsty. And, Maybe. like, True. this kind of makes sense because, you know, a cow or any other animal that you can get milk from is, can be, like, can be a sustainable source of drinkable water, and, and like, yeah, okay. you know, so in places where there was drought, you know, having a herd of, of milkable animals was actually kind of useful. As long as you could keep your herd alive, like as long as there was enough grass for them to eat or whatever, you could use them as a source of drinking water. And ah. also like the, the calcium little- and the vitamin D and stuff as well, like would it have been beneficial? Yeah, exactly. Like it's also, you know, a great source of nutrients that are, are much harder mm. to get from from other sources. Mm. So there there was a, a good reason as to why humans that were able to drink milk and without having all these symptoms, um, you know, thrived and you know reproduced and blah blah blah. Insert evolution here. And over the last like couple of thousand years, really, humans have been able to develop the ability to actually keep the the lactase production into adulthood and be able to digest milk as adults. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's really interesting how scientists actually determined when humans started drinking milk and like whether or not they could like actually digest it or not. Yeah. And they're able to look at like the plaque on the teeth of, of oh, skulls they found. Oh, no way. Yeah, wow. and, and trapped inside the plaque was like milk proteins that Whoa. only come from milk. <laughs> So they're going, wow, these humans drank milk. And then they can look at the DNA from, from their bones and, and things like that. And they to go- see whether they make lactase. They didn't have the gene that produces lactase as adults. Oh. And wild. so not only was the first person to ever drink milk like a little bit weird and like, why would they do that? Why would they do that? They couldn't process it either. Well, like even, yeah. I mean, we said, why would they do it in the first place? Even after that, like, why did they think it was a good idea and do it again? Because well, if you're they, probably- they obviously, you know, were lactose intolerant, but they yeah. were like, obviously, yeah, very thirsty. Or obviously the benefits that they got, like maybe they had a very nutrient poor diet or something. Mm-hmm. And so the benefits that they got when they started drinking milk outweigh the unpleasant experience of trying to digest it i don't know <laughs> yeah must, it must yeah. otherwise like, obviously it has why? because evolution has yeah. has decided mm. that that humans who produce lactase have some sort of advantage yeah and and this was actually able to develop independently in several different populations um there was a couple oh. in in europe and in east africa and the middle east so it was it happened multiple Some different times 
evolution happening. Yeah. yeah but now this is absolutely fascinating. Mm. And that we, we, we've talked about how important this evolution is. And it's obviously advantageous. But it astonished me to find out that still most adults on the planet are not able to digest lactose. Oh, really? Most adults? 65 to 70% no. of the adult population are lactose intolerant. We all just like it too much. <laughs> that is a huge... That's so much more than I thought. Yeah. yeah and it's and not just it's, milk. It's like ice cream and cheese. Ice cream and cheese, butter, yogurt, like all of these different things. And it, I think the reason that this is the case is somewhat ethnocultural. And that is because mm. lactose tolerance or what they call lactase persistence, the ability to produce lactase as an adult, Mm -hmm. developed in Europe, people of European descent, like, mostly have this gene. Right. But where it didn't develop in other populations, it's only occurred because of, like, transference from other populations. So, for example, most of East Asia, most people living in in places like China do not have the lactase persistence gene and are just lactose intolerant in adulthood. So, really, we shouldn't be thinking of this lactose intolerance as a disorder because it's it's normal to be lactose intolerant, really. Um, You know, we should be thinking about it as like lactase persistent is kind of people who have this mutation is the is the unusual you know trait that that some people have this ability to digest lactase in or use lactase to digest lactose into adulthood. So. It's it's really interesting that there's actually such diversity still in different human populations. Yeah. I guess my my mum's family, so my mum's Vietnamese, like, you know, they all don't drink milk. So I would be the example of mm. transference from Europe. <laughs> yeah, there milk. you go. I was going to ask whether, you know, those Asian cultures where, you know, where it's a much lower percentage have the ability do, is milk a big part of those of the dishes and the stuff that they consume over there? Um, I'm uncertain. Yeah, so in a lot of places that don't have lactase persistence, are lactose intolerant, they don't drink as much milk as in places mm. that, that do have this gene. So that's definitely true. But really interesting is that they've still developed ways to consume dairy and get all of those benefits without having to deal with the, the issues from mm. trying to digest lactose. And okay. various ways of processing milk actually reduce the lactose content. So, um, you know, things like yogurt and cheese, like they actually reduce the amount of lactose quite significantly. Uh-huh. Um, some cheeses only have like 10% of the amount of lactose as the equivalent amount of milk. Mm-hmm. So it is able to actually reduce it. And another one that's really like sounds to me sounds kind of gross is fermentation of milk. Yeah. And and this is a, a big thing in mm. in a lot of cultures where this lactase persistence gene isn't present, like they have a lot of fermented milk. And yeah, I, I haven't tried sounds- it, so I can't really comment, but it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it sounds kind of gross to me. Sounds um, not appealing, but I guess when you think about what milk actually is in the first place, it's also kind of gross. So, you know, what's another step in the in the process of drinking the milk made for the young of a you know, different different species, species. um gross <laughs> <laughs> but we do it i drink milk i'm not i'm not judging anyone that does um just don't think about it too hard yeah <laughs> wow that's so really interesting kai it's it's yeah i think it's it's really interesting and i think it's really cool that 
humans have one not only developed the ability to like process lactose in some cases but also culturally other groups have developed the ability to get all the benefits of mm. milk and milk products without having without the, the downsides of, of you know what we would typically call lactose intolerance mm. so yeah really fascinating and another example of things that only humans do yeah mm. gosh love humans <laughs> love that and with that that wraps up today's show all about human science remember you can always find us on social media at Radio Silence on Twitter um, and you can find us on SoundCloud if you know you only caught part of today's episode you want to hear the whole show and our last couple of weeks of episodes are also up there and with that our final song very fitting is Milk by the 1975.